0: Welcome to the Internet of Humans, a podcast about the humans behind one of our favorite things, the Internet. I'm Jillian York.
1: And I'm Konstantinos Comaitis.
0: Today, we're going to be talking with Mike Maznick. Mike's the founder and editor of the popular TechDirt blog, as well as the founder of the Silicon Valley think tank, the Copia Institute. In both rules, he explores the intersection of technology, innovation, policy, law, civil liberties, and economics. That is quite the intersection. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's great to have you. So uh, I think we're going to just dive right in. Um, So one of the things that I know that you have been uh, talking about and writing about and you have spent a lot of hours thinking about is um, regulation in the Internet. And I think Mm -hmm. that I speak for the both of us when I say that you also over the years have converted and sort of believe that right now we're at a place where regulation is sort of inescapable, right? Um, One of the things, however, that at least keeps me up at night is the attempt to regulate the infrastructure. And I know that you have a lot of opinions about that. So would you like sharing some of them, please?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I will not share. Um, Yeah, I mean... There's there's so much complexity here, and and I, like I could go in all different directions with with this conversation. Um, you know, obviously regulations are coming, and from from all different places around the world, and and they're approaching things in all different ways. And to some extent, there's like there's value in in a bunch of different people making a bunch of different mistakes that hopefully we could learn from but but i fear in the process that that we end up killing off the internet uh, as that happens and and i would prefer not to have that happen um and and one of the big problems is that so much of the focus on the conversation about regulating the internet is really about regulating facebook because that's who everybody is mad at and and maybe a little bit of google a little bit of amazon uh here and there but but it's really, everybody's mad at Facebook and they think, you know, that that Facebook is the internet and, and you've written very nicely about why people should be aware that, that the two things are different. Facebook does not represent the internet, even if Facebook would like to be the internet. Um, and very, very little thought has been put into, um, not just the fact that the internet is not just Facebook, but that there are different players within the internet stack. And, and, right. and how a rule or regulation that is designed to cause trouble for Facebook might cause much more trouble further down the stack, whether it's, you know, domain registrars, hosting companies, you know, ad providers, all of these other players, you know, payment processors certainly is a big one. All of these other players within the ecosystem that make the internet what it is and what works um, would have tremendous impact. And um, and so I really worry a lot about the, the regulatory impact of you know, of these rules on those other players and what that means. And in the long run, how, you know, what I fear really happens is that it locks in a company like Facebook because it's saying, you know, it, it makes it impossible for a, an independent domain registrar or hosting company to exist. But, you know, Facebook will figure out its way around the rules. And then your only option is if you want a website, you have to go through, you know, the, the, the Facebook garden to, to, to have that website. Um, and so I'm really worried about how, how all that plays out. If I just may, Julian, I'm so sorry. Just a very no, quick follow-up question,
1: <laughs> because I think that the, there is a chilling effect here, right? And the mm-hmm. and the scalability of regulating in infrastructure that I'm not sure fully registers uh, with regulators yet. Do you think that this ultimately, however, is going to determine the future of the internet? <sighs>
2: That's a big question. Right. <laughs> I am mean, I'm, I'm worried about it. Um I'm I'm worried I'm worried that this will drive the, the direction of the future internet completely by accident, right? I, I don't think anyone is actually thinking about these things. And so I think that the consequences of these rules are things that nobody, you know, within the policymaking realm is really considering. And to the extent that they are considering it, they don't think it'll be that big of a deal or they think it'll be something that like, ah, you know, maybe it'll have a little impact on the margins. Um, But some of the plans, I think, could have major, major impact and really, really change the kind of Internet that we have. Um, And so, you know, I'm hoping and trying, and I know both of you are as well, trying to get any... Regulators and policymakers who are looking at this stuff to at least recognize that there are these other other parts of the internet, and that rules that are very broadly written, without understanding how the internet itself actually functions, um, could have wide-ranging consequences.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with your work as we are, um, I would love to just ask you about um, you know something of yours that I feel quite passionate about. Um, the, you know, around the complexities and, and incapacity of these companies to deal efficiently with content moderation. So you've posed Maznick's impossibility <laughs> theorem. Um, says content moderation is impossible at scale. And of course, you know, I deeply, deeply agree with that. Um, do you want to just share a little bit about that for, for our, our uh, less initiated listeners?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of a joke on, on what's known as Arrow's impossibility theorem, which is Kenneth Arrow, who is a very famous economist who I do not hold a candle to. I'm not in that same category. But, but his, he had you know, come up with this whole thesis about um, different voting systems and how every voting system, there was no voting system that was possible to accurately represent the real will of the people. Um, and, and so I sort of took that and as a joke. Uh, it's kind of a joke, but it's, it's an important point. Um, noted that no content moderation system uh, will please everyone for for a variety of reasons. And and, um, it's important, I think, to actually understand the different reasons why no content moderation system will work, which is, uh, you know, especially one at scale, which is, First of all, anyone who is moderated, for the most part, does not like to be moderated, doesn't believe they should be moderated. So just the fact that someone is being moderated, you're going to have complaints that that moderation is unfair, it's, you know, no good. Um, So you have that at the basic level. Even, Even, you know, even the the most trollish uh, people out there who probably recognize what they're doing, still when they're moderated, they feel that it's unfair. You know, they, they were trying to skirt the rules or they were trying to play by the rules in, in the most you know, narrow definition of the rules or whatever. Um, but beyond that, when you're talking about the scale of the internet and the scale of most of these platforms, no matter how good you are, they're still going to involve a whole bunch of subjective calls. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people out there who seem to think that content moderation calls are mostly black and white, and maybe there's like a little gray area of, of, you know, subjective calls that need to be made. The truth is the opposite of that, right? I mean, you have a very, very small number of calls that seem, you know, that are pretty clear, and the rest is this, this wide gray area where, you know, if somebody's got to make a judgment call one way or the other, and when you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of pieces of content, and you're dealing with tens of thousands of moderators who have to make decisions, each of them is going to have slightly div- different, you know, mental models for this stuff. And even when the the companies present rules, you know, the rules are not as easy to apply as you think. Uh, no, ma- no matter... You know, how much you think you can write the rules, uh, you're not going to. And and I really, I recommend to people, if they really want to understand this, um, a few years ago, Radio Lab, which is a great, you know, radio show podcast, did this amazing episode where they kind of went in deep with Facebook and, and they walked through this in such a nice and compelling way. They're great storytellers and they, you know they show like a rule and then they show like a, a situation an exception to that rule and like oh wait right we had to think about that so they add in another you know uh modification corollary to the rule and then they show like something that 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 where you're like oh wait that doesn't apply here that happens you know thousands of times every day and so you have you know millions of hundreds of millions of pieces of content thousands of moderators rules that cannot cover every situation and you have so you have different people who you know might look at something uh look at the same piece of information with the same rules and come to a different decision. And so there are going to be things that people disagree with and choices that people disagree with. And and I'll, I'll just add one more thing. I know I'm I'm sort of going on like crazy, but you know a, a few years ago uh, we came up with we we worked with um, CDT and Emma Alonso over there who um, both of you know um to to create this um, uh, game that we ran at a conference, at the content moderation conference. This is all content moderation experts for the most part. And we gave them eight different content moderation scenarios and we asked them to vote on their phones uh, and we gave them four different options on things that they could do with each of the the pieces of content. And, and again, these are, these are experts. We gave them a lot more time than any actual content moderator will have to make these decisions. And none of them could agree. So on all eight of the, the case studies that we gave them, at least one person chose each of the four different choices. We had a leave up, like do nothing, a take down, a um, uh, put some sort of content flag warning on this, or the uh, escalate, which is basically like, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> like somebody, somebody above my pay grade has to take care of this. Uh, and for each, each one of the case studies that we presented, Somebody chose each of those things, just showing that like even these experts with extra time, you know, couldn't all agree on what, what the answer was. So the, so the, sort of impossibility theorem is just the nature of, of having to make these decisions on human scale. Like, you can't do that in a way that everybody's going to agree. Tons of people are always going to disagree, and often they're going to have very good arguments for why moderation should work one way or the other. And so the idea that you can put in place rules, you know, from a regulatory standpoint that say you have to do this or this has to be done and not have that happen, that there's some magic way to do this right is preposterous and completely disconnected from the reality of how content moderation actually works.
0: No, you know, I absolutely agree with you, as you know, and thank you for the uh, for the in-depth explana- explanation, because I feel like we're going to have some folks who are not going to go Google it, which is, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, I was having this debate on Twitter earlier with uh, Chris Messina, who I believe is one of the founders of something. Now I'm going, like, shoot, I should know this.
2: He, he's um, a, yeah, he's a, he's a, a, a Web2 guy. He's everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: he's everywhere. And, you know, he was kind of running through this same debate with me, and I'm going, like, we, but... But we're working on this, and it does just sort of feel like me to me like Silicon Valley folks are still kind of just totally oblivious to these arguments and keep pushing for for more uses of AI, more use of algorithms to remove content. I mean, we're seeing it, you know, we saw it first with with things where it may have a use like child sexual abuse imagery, but now we're seeing it increasingly with, Um, terrorist content, with nudity, with other, um, with speech where it's really, really problematic. Um, And I'm curious, just, you know, as somebody who's seated in the Bay Area, why do you think that this disconnect exists the way it does?
2: I mean I think there's a few things so one is like I don't think there's something there's anything wrong with people trying to to build better systems and 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 better setups and, and experiment in different ways and maybe we'll learn things from from different things and different communities and different projects may benefit from different types of moderation systems so I'm all for like wider experimentation and and trying out things and and we see things like you know, how Reddit handles some things is really interesting. How Wikipedia handles things is really interesting, but they're are different approaches for different communities. And and even like you know within Reddit, you have the, um, you know you sort of have a, a slightly distributed system in that you know each subreddit has their own moderators and their own rules. There are sort of master rules for for across Reddit, but then you can have different rules within each subreddit. And I think that's that's a really interesting model as well. You know, I I do think that. Um, you know, sort of the approach of uh, of sort of, you know, a lot of techie people is always like, well, you know, we can apply more technology to this. Everything is solvable by technology. Um, and some things are, right? I mean, it's, it is true that like... Technology has solved certain things in the world, um, but I, I do think that there is a sort of hubris that that ignores the you know human nature. You, you're not going to solve human nature. You're not necessarily going to solve deeper societal issues that that really are at the heart of a lot of these issues. Um, you know, technologists often also have a, a a very low threshold for understanding the legal realities of what they're talking about and the legal implications uh, of what's going on. Um, you know, and, and so. I have this, I'm I'm sort of of two minds of this. Like I appreciate the ideas that the sort of tech crowd is willing to kind of jump in and say like, we're going to solve this with technology because sometimes they actually do some interesting things, but you know, I'm also sort of, you know, laughing at, at, the, the sort of hubris behind, like, oh yeah, you know, we can solve these things that society has not been able to solve forever, or we can ignore these legal realities <laughs> that, that that have come about for you know centuries or decades of of you know back and forth and and, and changes to to policy and the way we approach these things, um, and and so like I, I like to see the experimentation, um, and but I'm I'm amused by the the. Uh, you know, the fact that they will discover when when the technology hits reality that it doesn't always work out the way they think it will.
1: So I want to sort of follow up a little bit on this, even though I want to ask you something completely different. And only because I hear what you're saying, and I think that you're absolutely uh, right. But at the same time, at least in Europe, one of the things that we're seeing from policymakers and regulators is that they, they actually believe and they really depend on those technical solutions. So European regulation, for instance, in the context of upload filters, is infatuated Mm -hmm. with this idea. I'm not sure whether they have been convinced by uh, tech companies that this is the only workable solution, or they have no idea what is going on, but we have seen it, you know, there is in the copyright directive, the the Mm -hmm. terrorism regulation made it, uh, you know, has it, Uh, there was discussion by some parties that they wanted it even in the DSA, so... We are seeing that those technology solutions are sort of supported by regulation. And of course, this creates, it's like a, you know, it's like a vicious circle, right? Because we know that those technology solutions can only be created uh, and deployed by companies, a few companies, essentially Facebook and Google. Uh, What does that really, I mean, does it really help us address the real issues here or even uh, from the point of view of the state, which currently believes that solving the internet problems is going to sort of solve all societal problems. Uh, yeah. Why is the state so focused on, on using these tools when they're told that, you know, they're not workable, they create uh, anti-competitive practices, they just, you know, they create a bunch of unintended consequences for the infrastructure of the internet. I know that you and I have discussed about this. So why is the state going along with this, you think?
2: <laughs> I mean, if I knew the answer to that, <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, the, the, there's... You're there done, few, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a few different things going on, I think, right? You know, this is a, this is speculation from from sitting here, right? You know, there's a few different things. So one is exactly what you said, right? You know, so much of this is sort of, there's these underlying societal problems. Um, And, you know, in theory, that, that is a job for, for governments to be trying to, to help fix, right? Like the underlying societal issues that are, that are you know, failing people um, are, are the things that we have government for in, in the first place. And, and they are failing. Um, and rather than admit that they are failing and rather than admitting that they don't have any real policy proposal or any real policy idea that will, will help alleviate those, those societal problems – It's easy to do two things. One is to blame the technology. uh, And so, you know, that takes the blame off of themselves. It wasn't our failings as policymakers to, to help society. It's this new technology. And that you know we have that through history, right? Blaming the new technology for societal problems is every moral panic going back centuries, right? You know you can, yeah. You know, I, I love going through the history list. Everybody talks about things like you know rock and roll and Dungeons and Dragons, and and but you go back and and there's even more where it's like you can find stories of uh like you know. Bicycles, you know, in the late 1800s, were, were going to destroy society. Uh, in the in the uh, m- early to mid 1800s, chess was melting people's brains. Like today, everything's of chess is oh like something. Oh my god! That, that, you know, this
1: is what used to be the Facebook of back then. What yeah, Facebook
2: is today? Ex- exactly. And and you can go back even further. In the late 1700s, the waltz, the dance, the waltz, the waltz. Was, I love that one. Yeah, was corrupting <laughs> the minds. You know, so it, it's sort of natural. For people to come in and, and blame, you know, the kids these days uh and their newfangled whatever uh is, is always going to be a problem. Oh Gutenberg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you, you can go back as far as you want, and you can always find something, something to blame the the sort of societal problems on. Um and that takes some heat off of the policymakers who who have failed to address these these issues uh really. Now, the second part of it is that. You know, to them who, who don't really understand the technology, the technology also looks kind of like magic, right? It's doing all this stuff that seems like magic. We don't understand. It. it must be magic. And therefore, as long as we tell people to sort of nerd harder, you know, obviously these smart techie guys can, can solve it. So they cause the problem. They can fix it because technology is magic and we don't understand the the restrictions and, and you know, and, and limits to what the technology can actually do. Um, so it, it's sort of, a, you know, it's a twofer, right? It allows them to take the, the heat off of themselves and to say, well, OK, this technology can do all of this bad stuff. Obviously, it can also do this good stuff if we just tell them to and tell them they need to work harder or we're going to find them or throw them in jail or whatever. And so, I, I think it's just sort of a convenient solution for for policymakers to focus on that rather than solving the underlying issues.
0: Yeah, that makes I, I completely agree with you there. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess I kind of want to take this to oh, I don't know. Let's see. How about the EU? <laughs> um, so we haven't we haven't dove into that yet um, yeah. so much. And obviously, you know, this is on a lot of our minds right now. We're both based in Europe. Um, and I know you're thinking about regulation there as well. And so, you know, one of the things um, that that I've been hearing and seeing a lot of lately, and I'm curious to see if you agree, um, is that the U.S. and the EU used to be in a little bit more in sync in the way that they addressed uh, issues of content moderation, with, of course, some notable exceptions, such as, you know, Germany's um, enforcement of law through, um, you know, through NetzDG, and even before that through mm-hmm. court orders. Um, but this is really no longer the case. And we're kind of seeing this, this broad differentiation between the approach of um, of the U.S. and the EU, with almost you know accusations that the EU is kind of forcing regulation that will affect the the rest of the world. Some of us may see this as a good thing; some may not. Um, but you know, what what's your take on this? Um, what, what's your take on the debates playing out in the U.S. and the EU, and kind of this um, this dissonance? Let's say.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's true. I think that um, you know, for for better or for worse, you know, the the EU has taken a more, you know, I. I I'm trying to think, how do I phrase this diplomatically? <laughs> Don, you don't need to. You don't, be yourself. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think that the EU, um, compared to the US, the EU has has actually taken a more serious look at these issues, right? I, I think that they've taken a more serious uh, exploration of of the various issues related to the technology. I don't think the solutions that they've come up with are necessarily good. Uh, and I have a lot of problems with them. But at least, you know, the U.S. is just sort of pure grandstanding where, you, I mean, you know, as we're, we're speaking right now, there are hearings going on in Congress, which are just pure garbage. I mean, they bring in experts who are not experts, who are just going to complain, the internet is awful, it's terrible, something must be done, the children are being harmed, we, we must do something. Um, and, and so that's, that's happening in the background, like right now as we speak. In the EU, at least, I think they have at least, you know, opened up the conversations to having like a more serious and, and thoughtful debate about these things. I still feel that the solutions that they've come to are really problematic and potentially very dangerous for the open internet. Um, I do feel that, you know, and, and this may be my American bias uh, speaking, it does feel like a lot of the EU approach to this is somewhat punitive you know, we're going to harm these companies because, you know, and and so, you know, from the U.S. standpoint, people are arguing in the U.S. is because the Europeans are jealous. I don't think that's really driving it. But I do think that there is this, like, you know, these companies are bad. They happen to be U.S. companies. We have to do something about them. And therefore, we're going to put in place regulations. And if it harms those U.S. companies, you know, who cares? The, The fact that it might also harm the sort of wider internet um, or potentially, in some of these cases, lock in these U.S. companies as the only ones who can handle the re- sort of regulatory regime that's necessary. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that that they seem to care as much. And in some cases, there that may be. You know, I don't think anyone would admit this up front, but I think that might be a side benefit where rather than a sort of wild west where anyone can set up a company and anyone can build a web page and anyone can do these things on the web, um, if it's just four companies or six companies or whatever that we can closely regulate and demand do what we want them to do, you know, to to some regulators, that's a benefit, not, not a harm. Um, the fact that that sort of you know, locks in a few giants, a very powerful giants, or you know, limits sort of creativity and innovation across the board. Um, I don't think that's a big concern to people, and so that worries me. So I'm, I'm, I'm very worried about the EU approach. I appreciate that they took a more serious and more thoughtful direction to get there, but I still think that the the end result of it is still, you know, pretty dangerous in my eyes, and and I'm 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 really concerned about about it. Um, and what it will mean for the future of the internet.
1: So if I if I may just jump off of that a little bit um, and raise a, a, a little bit, the, you know, take, better yet, move the conversation a little bit into uh, more uh, geopolitics. The one question that I want to ask you, and it really hit me um, a couple of weeks ago when, actually it was Thanksgiving, your Thanksgiving, guys, mm-hmm. when you were, you know, the U.S. was waking up to, to celebrations, and Europe was celebrating the fast that a huge milestone for the DSA was just overcome. And they were literally, now it can sail through um, the last pieces of the legislative journey and then go into implementation. And when I was reading that, it really hit me that Europe, with the DSA package, and that involves both the competition part and the content moderation part, and, and with the GDPR, mm-hmm. is the only block in the world that has managed to tackle, or has tried to tackle, let's say, Three of the biggest issues currently worldwide regarding the internet and that places europe for me it is the uncontested champion regulatory champion of 2021 now one of the things that at least we've seen with the gdpr and we expect that the same is going to happen with the dsa is this massive extraterritorial impact that is yeah. going to have and in the context of the gdpr you know at the time we didn't really we hadn't seen the implementation problem, so we were really celebrating, uh, you know, the, the the attempt of Europe to create a privacy statute, and, you know, the text was mm-hmm. yay. Uh, but with the DSA, we are going to see all over again the same thing. Yeah. And the GDPR, at least, led to some internet fragmentation. Do you think that the same is going to happen uh, with this monstrous uh, piece
2: <laughs> of legislation? I, I think without a doubt, I think I think it's going to have a far wide-reaching impact uh, way beyond the EU, um, and 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 I don't think that's going to be for the better. You know, um, some of us did warn about the GDPR uh, <laughs> way back in the day, and and specifically its impact on free speech, uh, which I think a lot of a lot of. Uh, the the warnings that that some of us raised have borne out, <laughs> um, you know. And and again, like I still appreciate the the what people who were putting together the GDPR were trying to do. And and again, like you know, you get into this weird spot where if you're criticizing regulation, people think that you're just like you know, oh, you know, you're, you're, you just want everybody to run free and you don't, you don't believe that there are any problems out there. And I'm not saying that. I think that there are real issues with, with the internet the way it is today. Um, and, and I think it would be difficult for anyone to deny that and to say that the internet today is perfect. Um, but you know, these, these sort of, these regulations have, have really massive impact. And again, like the people putting them in place, I don't, I I should let me let me make that even broader. I don't think anyone can accurately predict all of the impact of of these regulations. They're so widespread and there's so many different interconnected parts to how the internet functions, how society functions that putting in place these really broad rules um, is going to have a massive, massive impact and is, it's going to create real challenges. And we've seen that with the GDPR. And we already know that like, you know, a bunch of smaller advertising companies went out of business and it really ended up helping Facebook and Google, which again, like, you know, this is, this is, you know, part of it, again, that gets back to something I said kind of earlier on in this, was, was that like, how much of this is about regulating the internet versus how much is about regulating Facebook and Google and, 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 and related to that almost is how much of this is actually about trying to make a better internet versus how much of it is about punishing Facebook and Google, right? In the US context right now, you know, so much of the regulatory approach is very much just like, we need to punish these companies. It's punitive. It's, it's purely punitive. And, and I don't, I, I cannot I cannot wrap my head around that kind of thinking. Right. So, I, and I, I've pointed this out before in other contexts where I wrote a post. This is years ago now. I wrote a post that said, Do, would you rather have uh, a better Facebook or a dead Facebook? And, and so my thinking is like, you know, it seems self evident to me. That we should want a better Facebook. We should want a Facebook that actually does good in the world, that that does enable the things that it claims to enable and and does good things for the for the world. I think it's easy to say that it doesn't, it does a lot of harm right now. Um and it does some good. And and it's like, you know, how, how could we make a better Facebook? But so many people respond to that saying, like, no, we just want a dead Facebook. Like, Facebook is bad, Facebook is evil, it doesn't matter. There is no such thing as a better Facebook. We only want a dead Facebook. And that's a mindset that I don't understand. It's it's a purely punitive mindset, which just says, we need to kill this thing. It is bad. There is no way to improve it. There's no way to have something better. And it feels like a lot of the regulatory approaches are, are somewhat similar, perhaps not to that extreme. They're not trying to kill Facebook, but they're saying, we need to punish these companies for the bad things that they've done rather than put in place rules for a better world overall, you know. I think that the the EU policymakers right now will claim that they're doing one, but I think a lot of the decision-making is still driven by the other, which is that we need to punish these companies for the things that they've done in the past that maybe were not great. And and we can agree that, that they've done things that are not great. Um, but I think those are two different approaches and it's it's really important to understand the difference. And are you trying to create a better overall world or are you trying to punish companies for the, for the mistakes that they made in the past? You can argue, and perhaps this is the argument, that punishing the companies for the mistakes that they made in the past leads to them being better actors in the future. But I, I think it's a, there, there, there are different paths to get there and, and we're too focused on the punitive side rather than, than on actually improving the overall internet.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think you're wrong there. And I think it's, you know, I think right now, I, I, there's a lot of stuff in the DSA that I really appreciate, obviously, around transparency sure. and accountability. But I think, you know, when I, I've, I've been very critical of NET's DG, not just because of its export of um, problematic ideas to authoritarian states, or less democratic states, but also because of the fact that, you know, even if we, and I, I don't think that Germany's laws against Holocaust denial are inherently wrong, nor are they incompatible with international human rights frameworks. However, even if we seek to end that type of speech, I'm not sure how fining Facebook solves that problem. And I think that's really, there's not a lot of questions being asked about what the real goals are and what the potential um, negatives are of doing that. And so, yeah, I mean, again, obviously, I think most Americans will disagree with that take, but nevertheless, I think there has to be some way forward that goes after, you know, attacks the actual thing that we're trying to attack rather than, um, you know, going about it through all of these other ways. That being said, I know we're getting close to time, and I think we've got a couple of end questions. I did want to ask you very quickly, though, um, before we get to those very last questions, just if you've got a quick take on Frances Haugen. (laughs)
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, and I've written a little bit about it. Like, I I think I I appreciate the fact that she presented a bunch of information that was internal that I think is useful for the world to see. Um, I think that that a lot of that information has not yet gotten out to the world, but she has given it to journalists. And I know that like Gizmodo is now doing a big project to try and get as many of those documents uh, out to the, to the public as possible. And I, and I really appreciate that. So I appreciate that on the transparency side of things. I appreciate the idea of whistleblowers who see bad things happening within companies being able to blow the whistle and to, to get that information out to journalists and to be able to reveal that information um, transparently. I, so I think that aspect of it is great I I think that her policy prescriptions are not necessarily uh as well thought out as <laughs> as as some of her some of the other things that she's raised and that concerns me and there are all sorts of people including you know the two of you and lots and lots of other people who have spent you know years exploring the difficult policy choices related to all of this. Um, she is not, a policy person and and doesn't have that that deep well of knowledge. Um, it would be nice if she had the humility to sort of recognize that and to to pass things off to the policy experts on these things. Um, that hasn't necessarily come to pass so far. Uh, and, and I, I wish that she were a little bit more open to recognizing that others have come before her who might understand some of the nuances that she seems to gloss over, uh, when she talks about things. So I, I appreciate the whistleblowing. I appreciate getting the information out there. I appreciate the transparency. Um, I find that her, her policy prescriptions are, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, not as nuanced or knowledgeable as as people who have been there before, who could take some of the information that she's revealed and do something more useful with it.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I, I I hear you, and I feel, hopefully yeah. by the time this podcast airs, by the time this episode airs, we'll be in different territory there. But Constantinos, let me pass. Yeah, I hear
1: here. So again, conscious of time, <laughs> but literally, we have one question that we always end. So before, okay. however, I have a huge challenge for you. I want to yeah. literally in a minute max two when i mentioned the words section 230 how do you how does it feel what do you have to say about it but it literally admitted or maximum two <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, look i've written i've written so much about section 230 people can look up what i've i've written i think section 230 is 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 actually an incredibly smart piece of regulation that has really, really helped free speech online. And I think that people, it is one of the most misunderstood pieces of of regulation out there. I think it is getting blamed for all sorts of things that it does not deserve blame for. I think that there are all sorts of regulatory problems with the way that the internet is regulated in the U.S. and the way that the internet works in the U.S. And if you wanted to fix it, 230 is the last of, of, of the regulations that impact the internet that we should be looking at. 230 is, you know, for people who actually understand it, 230 is, is a very, very clever piece of regulation that really has set things up in a way that has been tremendously useful to free speech online um, and to allowing different kinds of communities to form online. And I think, you know, people who are attacking it do not understand it, do not understand how it works and do not understand its interplay with the first amendment.
1: Oh wow! Thank you very much. So basically, <laughs> the U.S. should not touch Section 230. They right? should, I
2: mean, uh, uh, you know, they, they could do they could do two things with 230 that I would appreciate. One is there's a little typo in there. Uh, I would I would I hope that they fix that. <laughs> uh, uh, they should roll back FOSTA, which was the adjustment to 230 that they passed a few years ago. That I think has been a complete disaster. Um, You're here. And so, <laughs> so, so I think they could they could do that. You know, ideally, uh, this is never going to pass. But I would extend Section two thirty so that it covers copyright also. But that's never going to happen.
1: Okay, yeah, that we love would a good be...
0: we love a good pipe dream on this on this. Yeah, podcast. my wish, we're, we're my dad, the in
1: the bucket list. Let's put it into the bucket list, and yes, with yes, that, I think that. We are ready for our closing question, Jillian.
0: Yeah. Closing question. All right. It's on me this time. Um, so this is the question that we ask all of our guests, um, which is, what is your favorite internet human story?
2: Who Internet human story. Um, oh, gosh. I'm like going through. I've been on the internet since 1993, so... I'm trying to go through, there's like so many amazing stories, um, and, and so many things about like meeting people and, um, ah, oh, like, I have memories flashing <laughs> before my eyes and stories like, you know, um, you know, there's so much, I, this is, this is just the one that occurs to me right now. And maybe it's not the. You know, not the best or the my, my favorite, but it's the one that I'm I'm thinking about right now, which is you know, um, I, uh, I I grew up in New York, and 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 I had some friends who uh, uh, a couple of brothers who lived down the street from me when I was in elementary school, and and some I forget exactly when, but late elementary school or or just as I went to to middle school, they moved away, um and and I lost touch with them, um and. Just and they had fairly common names. Uh, you know, I'm not going to reveal their names, but it, it was sort of the equivalent of like Joe Smith. You know, a, a name that a, a search <laughs> online is, is not going to easily find uh, this person. Um, and every once in a while, I would try and you know dig through the internet to try and find them. And I finally did a few months ago. Um, and, wow. and through through a bit of luck uh, and a bit of, of clever googling uh, I I found um, one of the brothers and and I emailed him and I was just like hey it's gonna sound strange if it's not you but if you are this guy who lived here uh, and uh, you know, uh, you know, I just wanted to say hi and see how you are. And it turned out to be him. And he, you know, uh, CC'd in his his brother because I was friends with both of them. And we had a really nice conversation. And um, and I got to catch up with them. And, and I'm hoping post-pandemic, one of them said he's likely to travel through San Francisco and, and we're going to get together. And then somewhat related to that, I'm, I'm currently working on a project which I can't even talk about right now. Um, which Secret, yeah. secret project, which you guys <laughs> will find interesting when I can talk right. about it. Uh, okay, and, and it turns out that this this guy, who you know, I was friends with when I was seven years old, um, I think might be an expert related to the topic of this thing that I'm working on. That that so I was just like, you know, I this was it was a few months ago that I talked to him, and but just this weekend I was looking over his his where he works, his bio on the page, and I was like this is the guy that we need to help us with this project. Wow. And now I can just, you know, reach out to him again and be like, hey, you know, I know we were talking about, like, you know, playing in your backyard when we were <laughs> seven years old, but, like, can you provide some expertise about, uh, you know, th- this, it's, it's a, a part of the world that I don't have expertise on, but I'm working on a project to try and help out uh, with, with some of what's going on there. And so, I, like, that, none of that would have happened without the internet, you know? And, and so the fact that i'm able to connect uh with with somebody that i knew, you know, 40 years ago, uh and and then, you know, be able to to reestablish that connection and and communicate and share stories and you know, and i got pictures of their their family and 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 all sorts of really interesting things um you know, only came about because of the internet. And, and I, I think that aspect of the internet and the ability to communicate with people is always the, the most powerful thing. The fact that it connects humans to humans is, is, is wonderful.
1: Well, I think that we should close with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, we get the warm fuzzies when anyone gets our, what our podcast is about.
1: <laughs> yes. Mike, thank you very much for coming to talk with us. It has been a pleasure.
2: Yeah, no, and thank thank you guys for you know, I, I you know I appreciate everything that, that both of you have done for years. Uh and and keep up the good fight. Thank you, Mike. Thanks.
0: Happy holidays.
2: <laughs> thank Happy holidays. Bye.